Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. We are so glad that you're here today as we continue reading the book of Revelation together. And so today we begin in chapter 2 of Revelation, and we see a progression of letters to the seven churches. And so we are looking at the first letter this morning. Part one in the letter to the churches is the church of Ephesus. And what the theme of this is, is that we all must return to our first love. Now, the thing is, this morning we dive into first of seven letters John wrote under the inspiration of Jesus. You see, these letters were to prepare the church for Jesus' second coming. And when I say the church, not just the church as Ephesus, but the church as a whole today. For you and I, we must prepare for Jesus' second coming. And so as we talk and walk through these letters, it is important to remember that we must not be tempted to read these and say, well, this is my church, this is not my church, I'm good at that, but I'm not so good at that. We're not trying to identify with one of these seven churches. Again, it is seven letters, seven represents the number of completion. In other words, whatever is written into all seven of these churches' letters can be common to anybody. In other words, everything that needs to be said is said to these letters in these seven churches that we can use today. So we must be honest and we must be open and we must be willing to take the words John wrote to prepare us for Jesus' return. You know, anytime you go on a trip, there are certain preparations you must take. You need to pack your bags. You need to make sure your car is ready. You need to make sure your house is secure, that your pets are taken care of. And if you have enough money for on for the trip to have it on hand, and do you have all of your needed documents, all of these things. And uh, I don't know if you're like Donna and I, but anytime we go on the trip, we usually get about 20 or 30 yards away from the driveway. And what's the first thing you ask? What did I forget? Because you always think that there's going to be something. And sometimes we do forget something. And sometimes we just go on and, and didn't know we forgot it till we get there. And But one thing about it, you learn a lesson when that happens, don't you? You never forget it again. But as we look at these letters, look at them as your pre-packing list. Your pre-trip instructions for our eternal trip to heaven. That when Jesus comes back and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we will join them in the air. And that we will be with Jesus again. These are seven letters that they all share the similar structure. In other words, like in a, a normal letter, you have an introduction. You have the body of the letter. And then you have the ending of the letter. These seven letters of the church, they have certain a certain structure to it and now it's not always one after the other like this sometimes they're out of order sometimes they have some of these things sometimes they don't but these things are common in these seven letters number one there is an address to a specific church in other words it is addressed to a certain group of believers the second thing is it introduces jesus again revelation is the revelation of jesus Christ. That is what the book of Revelation is. And there's usually a statement regarding the current condition of the church. In other words, if we were to hire a firm to come in and evaluate our church, they would give us a condition of our church. That's what these letters did for the churches that they were written to. 
Then there is a verdict from Jesus regarding the condition of the church. And with that verdict, there is a command to respond. In other words, like when you go to the doctor and you say, well, doctor, it moves when I hurt my arm. And they say, when I move my arm, doctor says, don't move your arm anymore, right? No, it's not that simple. But if you go to the doctor and you're sick, you have to, to get medicine, you have to get treatment, you have to get whatever you need to get done. Jesus gives the treatment plan, what the churches must do. There is a command and then there is an encouragement to all Christians around the whole world. And then finally, there is the promise of a reward. So all seven of these letters have an element of this structure. So every word and every pattern is there for a reason. So may God speak to us through these seven letters as we go through them. Uh, we're looking at the first one tonight. So let's jump right in. Or not tonight, this morning. See, my hours got me mixed up. But uh, never forget, the first point, never forget that Jesus is your authority. Jesus is your authority. We see here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Write this letter to the angel, which is translated messenger, okay? Write this letter to the angel or the messenger of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. If this, if you missed last week, you could go back and read what that means, but basically the stars, seven stars in his hand were the messengers or the pastors of each of these seven churches and the lampstands were the seven churches represented themselves. And so we see here that Revelation had a specific subject targeted to a, a specific group of people. You see, too many people think that religion is just a list of all the things you should and should not do. And that whatever you shouldn't do will take all the fun out of life. And if that's you, you could never be more wrong, my friend. Yes, God's word applies to everyone generically, meaning that that God's word here, it it applies to everybody, but the crazy thing is, is that it is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is infallible. But yet when we apply this to our lives, it can be, it can mean so many different things depending on where we are with the Lord, depending on what the Holy Spirit says. I don't know about you, but sometimes I will read a text and it'll mean one thing to me at one point, And then I'll read it later on in life and it means a totally different thing because my life is in a different place. It's not that the scripture has changed. It's my understanding of the scripture has changed. So as we continue to look at this passage, we see that if you begin to believe God's word is generic and that it has nothing to offer you, you will never be inclined to read it. You see, God's word will specifically transform you, but you must yield to it. God's word will specifically, again, transform you, but you must yield to it. In layman's terms, you can gain insight from the words that were directed towards Ephesus and apply them to your life today. Just because you were not in Ephesus when this was written does not mean that you and I cannot learn from it. And God used a representative from each church to relay his message. We saw that when he says, Write this to the messenger. And we see that also Jesus inspects the work of his church. Now, I don't know about you all, but if you've ever worked in a company or been in a situation where they say, oh, by the way, like if you're in a restaurant, oh, the health department, they're, they're not supposed to tell you when they come. But somehow 
you always get a heads up when they're going to be there most of the time. And they'll say, well, look, the health department's coming. We need to clean up things. Or you may be in an office. Hey, the boss is coming from the main branch to over here. We got to got to make things look good. Or and so we do all of these things to make sure that when we are inspected, we look the best that we can. But let me tell you something, folks. Jesus inspects the work of this church long after I'm gone, long after you're gone, and long after the bricks of this building are lied crumbled in the earth. Jesus will know exactly what has gone on in this church. And he inspects the work of the church. Again, it says in verse 1, This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. My friend, Jesus walks among us today in this moment. Jesus holds the churches and the pastors in his hands. And his right hand, it denotes a place of honor. And it says that he walks among the golden lampstands. Uh, that, that imagery is much like back in the, the Old Testament times when they would set up the tabernacle. Or they would have the temple and the priest would walk in. And there would be priests that their job was to make sure that the lamps had oil in them. That the wicks were trimmed, that the lights were bright, that the lenses were clean, all of these things. And Jesus, just like the priest walked among the lamps to keep them clean, Jesus walks among us. So Jesus looks at your life, and he looks at the life of the church, and to make sure that we are paying attention to the details of our faith. Are we praying? Are we reading his word? Are we spreading his love to our community? Just like cutting the wicks, the the priest would cut the wicks to make sure that the dead part could be gone so the good wick could burn. Sometimes Jesus walks among us, helping us to cut the dead things out of our lives to keep us from burning bright. The second thing we see is that Jesus notices the good things you do. We're going to love this part. Love this part. Jesus sees the good works that you do. It says here in verses 1 through 3. I know all the things you do. Some translations say, I know your works. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance, and I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Boy, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? If there was ever an attaboy that Jesus gave, it's right here. And sometimes, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where your supervisor comes up and starts telling you all the great things you do. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? And don't worry, it drops here in a minute. But we see here that you can do all the right things, but yet still miss the point. They were doing all the right things, but there was a problem. Paul warned the churches that there would be false prophets that would come and try to lead them away. They would be wolves in sheep's clothing. And this church knew their doctrine and knew their Bibles well enough and knew the Scriptures to know when somebody was teaching whether it was false or not. And I wish more people, whether you're watching today by Facebook 
or you're in here today, I wish more people would cross-reference the speech of preachers and pastors, including myself, to keep me checked, to keep me accountable, to make sure that when I am preaching, I am preaching the Word of God, and I am not just saying one verse and then giving a, making it a springboard to whatever I want to say for the next however long I want to speak. Just because someone can stand in a pulpit like this or in front of a camera and say the Bible says, it does not make them a prophet. If they say the Bible says it, you better check behind them. And I'm including myself in that because at the end of the day, I will not be judged by the words that I say. I will be judged by the words of Christ that I proclaim. Because you see, scriptures can be twisted. And they can be taken out of context. We as a church must make sure that when we hear scriptures and when we hear preachers and when we hear things taught, that it lines up to God's word. Because there is a great benefit in reading the scripture and it is written. And just let it speak for itself. The passage here illustrates the church had a backbone. They stood up against these people trying to sow discord and false uh, false gospel to the church. They knew their scripture. They were known for their hard work and endurance, and they were patiently awaiting Jesus' return. Man, that all sounds good. And my friend, you can rest assured that the good you do for Jesus is appreciated. He sees you, and He brags on you, and He loves you. Matter of fact, Jesus loves you enough to correct you when you need it. Jesus loves you enough to correct you when you need it. In other words, Jesus holds you accountable. There were two friends that they were working together, and they were talking in the office about the concept of accountability. One friend worked up the nerve to finally tell the other friend something they've been thinking a long time. They told the friend, they said, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but you have a problem with avoiding accountability. And their friend bent their head back, opened their eyes wide, and said, looking at them, and whose fault is that? You'll get it in a minute. Get it, avoiding accountability, threw it back on them. It's never funny when you have to explain it. Can we edit that out? But anyway, listen to Jesus' words with an eye in mind as he identifies the problem with this well-performing church at Ephesus. You must return To your first love. And I'm going to try not to go crazy on this because when when I understood again for the first time in a long time what this meant, I wanted to shout and get excited. Not only because it's exciting, but also because it was so stinking convicting. Return to your first love. Revelation 2, 4 through 6. He says in verse 4, but I have this complaint against you. In other words, you've done all of these things, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. The King James Version says you have abandoned the love you had at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. In other words, I am going to shut you down, is what he's saying. 
But this is in your favor. You hate evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Man, but I have this complaint against you. Some translations say, nevertheless. But I have this complaint against you. Can you imagine what John must have seen as those flaming eyes we read about last week? Those flaming eyes are are looking at John in this vision and saying, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken your love for me and you have forsaken your love for my people. (laughs) You know what? It doesn't matter how many compliments you get. When you, when you, when that's followed up with a, but I have this against you, or a nevertheless, that wipes out all the compliments, doesn't it? <laughs> all that you have done is great, but what I'm about to share with you outweighs all the good that you have done. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, I want you to feel the weight of these words as I do. And in spite of all you have done, I love you too much not to address this. Loving correction. No one likes to be corrected, do they? Even when it's by ones that they love. It may be as simple as a loved one asking you, are you going to wear that on your way out the door? Or it may be somebody saying, look man, you really messed up with this. Because they love you and they're telling you this. Folks, look for loved one and friends that will love you enough to tell you the truth. Wouldn't you rather hear the truth from a friend than to hear the praises from an enemy? Proverbs says it this way in Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Because usually if an enemy is giving you compliments, it's only so they can cut you down later. What could be so important? That wipes out all the good that someone does. You have lost, abandoned your love for me. I want you to understand that when you read this in scripture, it's not lost like you lost your keys. You lose something, you may be able to find it. But the picture here is not someone who just accidentally lost their love for God. It's not someone that accidentally lost their love for Jesus. It is someone who abandoned their post. They, they deliberately left their love for Jesus. And so what this church was doing was leaving their love for Jesus and love for others and spending all of their energy on making sure that they were doctrinally sound, that they were doing all the good works that they could do, that they could be the most best, this terror, Terrible English, but the most bestest church they could ever be. But they lost the love. Reminds me of families that I've seen over the years that the father or the mother will say, well, I've worked really hard to to put food on the table for them, and that's why I'm gone six or seven days out of the week. And I I see my, my kids and my wife for a couple hours on the weekend, and they're... I'm doing this because I love them. My friend, your kids would much rather see you than a dollar bill. 
Look, I'm not, I'm not throwing people that work under the bus here, but I'm just saying at the end of the day, just like this church, all of the work that we do, all of the great things we do, if people slap us on the back and say, hey, you go to a great church and you folks are great people and you do good work and you, you do, you provide for your family, you provide for your church, but if you don't do it with love, it's for the wrong reasons. We have to remember that we must not leave or abandon our love for Jesus. You see, if you lost something, you know where, or I mean, you don't know where to go find it. Because if you lost it, that's the whole definition of losing something. If anybody's going to lose something, it's going to be me. I can't tell you the number of trips I've made up here over the years looking for an item or a Bible or a book or a guitar or something. Just where did I put it? Lost it. There's some things that I've lost that I'll never find again. That's Or like sometimes, I don't know if y'all have these, but we've got a magic washing machine. Y'all got a magic washing machine? I will have a sock that I have lost for two or three weeks, and all of a sudden, the washing machine decides to produce it. It's a miracle. Praise Jesus. The miracle of the washing machine. The lost sock came back. But the truth of the matter is, if you lose something, you don't know where you, where, where you lost it at. But to abandon something, to leave something, is an act of your will, and you know exactly where you left it, and you know exactly where to go to if you want to return to it. Jesus says you have left, you have abandoned, you have walked away from the love you once had for me. You don't lose your first love, folks. You leave it. A couple doesn't fall out of love. A couple decides to leave the commitment and the love they have for one another. You don't just fall. You don't just lose. You make a decision. And when you lose something, you don't know where to find it. But when you leave something, you know where to find it. And so we see here the church of Ephesus, Ephesus, what was their deal? They were a church going through the motions. Can you imagine attending a church that Jesus was praising just a few verses ago? Man, if you can see a church where it's doing all of these great things, and Jesus is doing so many, I mean, they're good works, good doctrine, great numbers, they're on TV, they're on the internet, they're everywhere, and everybody wants to be a part of that. But if you go there and you just sense that something is not right, you can't put your finger on it, but you just know that there is not the love for Jesus there that you feel like should be there. There's not a love for people. They love people, but only if you match a certain criteria. If you if you dress a certain way, or you look a certain way, or you drive a certain vehicle, or you go to a certain school, or you work in a certain industry. Look, churches have been guilty of that, and I pray that our church is never guilty of that. But my friends, let me tell you what. It doesn't matter how big our numbers get, how low our numbers get. We must love Jesus and love others. But above all else, because if you do those two things, everything else will fall in line. Watch out for people who serve a church where they can get their ego stroked. Where they can get their popularity. Where they can get their Instagram likes and their Facebook feeds. Watch out for people that go to a church only to where they can go to have power over somebody. I can't tell you the number of people over the years, and I'm not talking about this church, but 
It's amazing what you pick up in church work over the years. And if you've ever been in it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Usually the most vilest offenders of people that want to boss you around in the church are the ones that are bossed around under their own roof. There are people that are in churches for the power they feel it gives them. There is no love in that. Jesus is not impressed with that. The church of Ephesus was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. But people would say, many are loving and serving, and boy, that pastor can preach. But deep down inside, feeling that something is off. What did the church of Ephesus had? They had religion. They, they had the, we have our weekly schedule. This is what we do on Monday. This is what we do on Tuesday. And this is our group of people that make sure that no apostles come in here or no, no preachers come in here that, that preach wrongly. And we're going to make sure that we get all this set up and we got all of our system. But yet, it's only for them. That's religion. Folks, as you can see, was Jesus impressed with all the stuff that they did? He congratulated them on them, but at the end of the day, he loved them enough to call them out and say, Look, I love what you're doing, but you are wrong. You don't love me like you used to love me. Folks, do not place what you do for Jesus above your love for Jesus. Do not place what you do for Jesus above your love for Jesus. Now look, this is not a guilt trip. It's not unfair or unrealistic to think that Jesus is saying you don't have the same feeling that you had when you first accepted me. Do you remember your first few years? Some of you were a Christian as long as you can remember. I was not. I mean, I I wasn't a bad kid, but I wasn't a great kid. I remember I came to faith fully, I would say. My full understanding of Jesus Christ was when I was in like, right, right between middle school and high school. And the Lord came to my life, and I tell you, man, those first three years, woo, like Shekinah glory every day. I was taking on hell with a water pistol until life started getting rough, until life started getting complicated, and then you realize that it wasn't all hymns and fairies and flowers and, and all that kind of stuff like that. There is a point in your Christian life where you realize it is just a real struggle to put one foot in front of the other. So this is not a guilt trip. Jesus is not saying, look, you're not as happy as you were when you first met me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you don't love me like you did once. It's like, how many of y'all have ever been to Carowinds? Or a theme park? Anybody? Man, I'll tell you what. I remember my first Carowinds trip. My parents had taken me, when we lived in Virginia, had taken me to Bush Gardens. But, I mean, I didn't have any brothers or sisters. I didn't have any friends with me. So it was like, whoa. And I was too scared to ride a, a roller coaster. So, I mean, you know, it was all snack bars and, and ring tosses for me. But, boy, when I went to Carowinds for the first time with a group of kids just like me, it's like a whole new world was opened up in front of me. And I remember going to Carowinds thinking, man, this place is awesome. And then after about 25 years of youth ministry and going to Carowinds for the hundredth time, I'm like, oh, I'd rather you poke me with a rusty nail than make me go to Carowinds. But hey, that's what they wanted to do. That's what they wanted to experience. And we went. Did my love wane for Carowinds? Absolutely. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I, I would still, if any of y'all want to go to Carowinds, call me. We'll go. But it's not like the first time I went there. Things have changed. But the best illustration of losing your first love and, and what that looks like, I think, is probably the love cycle of marriage itself. I, that's a great way to identify this. Many of you, like me, remember when you found the person you wanted to marry. All the love songs on the radio started making sense, didn't they? You couldn't wait to see the one you loved. And for the first few years of marriage, everything was exciting and new. As life moved on, your love began to mature from the early infatuation to the I am committed to you regardless. Now, look, I'll go ahead and tell you, look, I'm I'm still infatuated with the lady that God gave me. She, uh, I'm sorry, ladies, but she is the hottest woman in the world to me. And, and I still, I can still, even after all these years, still see that girl that I first met. But, oh boy, the love that I have for her, when I met her, compared to what we've been through, what we've gone through, and where we are now, that love is so much richer and deeper and committed. Because, there, look, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there's days where I'm sure she looks over at me and she goes, oh no, you again? No, she probably, she said, don't you say that. I'll get in trouble for that comment. But the truth of the matter is, it's not like you wake up every morning and go, oh, praise the Lord, I'm in love. Was it elf? I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. I see that movie a lot because my wife is a Christmas nut. But that, that kind of warm feeling that, that makes you all squishy inside is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, just like in a love relationship, have you ever been out maybe to a restaurant or a store or just walking downtown and you see an elderly couple holding hands? One person is helping the other one with a walker or opening the door for them and they're just helping them in and out of the seat. They won't let go of each other. And hey, what do you think? Oh, I hope we can have that one day. That type of love, a matured love, a proven love, a committed love, a tested love, is so much different than when you first met that person. And what Jesus is saying is, look, he's not saying you need to go back to the way you were when you first met me. But what he's saying is, is you need to mature in your love. You need to trust me. You need to love me and trust me. And not only that, love me enough to love my people. What is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. The second of these, love others as yourself. So when we talk about the first love, it's not just about the excitement that you feel at the beginning of love, but it's the trust and the mileage that you put on that relationship over the years. Loving Him when life is good and loving Him when life is not so good. Loving others when they're good to you and loving others when they're not. So how do you get your first love back? The Bible says it right here. Number one, remember, remember, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. A great example of that would be the prodigal son. If you remember that story, the prodigal son 
wanted his whole inheritance from his father. He squandered it on fast living, fast women, and all these other things. And so he ends up, he is at the bottom of despair, eating from a pig trough, eating pig slop, and he remembers his home. And he remembers his father, and he comes to his senses. My friend, the first step for you to reclaiming your first love is to remember it. Quit chasing the wrong things. Quit chasing what Facebook tells you you need. And then finally return. Again, he says, look how far you will fall and turn back to me. Do the works you did at first. And if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Remembering is always the first step to returning to God. And repentance is the follow-up to that. It's not about making you guilty or making you feel inadequate or a sense of shame. It's about your feelings. It's not about them at all. It's about the simple decision to return to where you were. Don't let emotions keep you from returning to the love that Christ you once knew. And he says, and do the works you did at first. What is that? Maybe it's time you start reading the Bible again instead of chicken soup for the soul. Maybe it's time you spend more in the Bible feed than it is your news feed. Maybe you need to put a little bit more strength in what the Bible says than the CNN program says or the Fox News program says. Maybe it's listening to a preacher or a podcast or something. Or maybe it's just get sitting down in a chair reading God's Word, and talking to Him one-on-one. That's where it started, isn't it? We should go back to that. And in conclusion, we see that heaven is a reward for those who return to Him. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life. That is in the paradise of God. The tree of life sounds familiar, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it was in Eden. It's in paradise. It is with God. And we will once again eat from the tree that God has supplied exactly for us. Anyone with ears. Folks, this was not only written to the church of Ephesus. It was written to you and you and you and me. May the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. May you return to Him. And my friend, if you need to return to Him, if you want some some help in figuring out how to do that, I will be glad. I will stay here until everybody is gone. If you're watching online, I will be glad to reach out to me and I will be glad to help you. But my friend, it's not in this time and day. I want to be on this side of heaven not on the other side. So affirm your love for Jesus. Affirm your love for others. In return, where you need to return. 